Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news about China with our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and, of course, from the website at SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the home studio in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville is Jeremy Goldcorn, a.k.a. Jin Yumi, the tireless editor-in-chief of SupChina. Our relationship in the past has not been fair. Not fair, but I don't blame Jeremy. In fact, I think he deserves great credit for being able to take advantage <laughs> of me the way that he did. Jeremy, <laughs> unfair, Jeremy, but greet the people, that, won't you? Th- thank you, Kaiser. Thank you. I'm honored. I'm honored. <laughs> I'm honored. Um, so um, I understand that your preferred candidate for Chapel Hill Town Council won. Uh, yes, she did. In fact, uh, Gu Hongbin, is, she's an amazing woman, uh, originally from Shanghai. She... Uh, came to North Carolina about 23 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. She uh, is the first Chinese-born person to win elective office in our state. So I actually helped out a little bit on the campaign. I made some uh, radio ads for her, which I assure you were a lot better than the ones that you and me did for Harry's razors or for Casper mattresses. (laughs) She actually ended up winning, and we didn't sell many mattresses. But the the total number of of votes that she got was actually the the highest of, of any of the people standing for town council. So we had a great turnout. Uh, it's not like Virginia. So she's a re- Republican candidate, right? No, no, no. She's actually, she's super progressive. Right? You'd think. I mean, it's a, it's amazing. I mean, all these people that I, I had seen from like the, the, the summer of, of hate, all these Trumpists, these Chinese Trumpists, they actually turned out like canvassing for her. And stuff. It was pretty amazing. They came around for her. Yeah, oh, wow. It turns out, okay. yeah. It, so it turns out race really is a factor in the way they vote. <laughs> Race or the power of personality. Speaking of personalities, um, Donald Trump, his orangeness, has come and gone from Beijing. Uh, He had a tour of the Forbidden City and apparently was the first uh, foreign leader since 1949 to actually have dinner, to be hosted for dinner inside the Forbidden City. He tweeted, President Xi, thank you for such an incredible welcome ceremony. It was a truly memorable and impressive display. Um, and then he tweeted again. And then in the coming months and years ahead, I look forward to building an even stronger, in capital uh, letters, relationship between the United States and China. So and is that likely? What did Trump and Xi Jinping achieve during their meeting, if anything? 
how have the last few days altered the geopolitical environment of East Asia? To help us answer those questions, today on Seneca, we are delighted to have as our guest, Jane Perlez, diplomatic correspondent from the New York Times, Beijing Bureau, uh, and the only journalist that I've ever had the pleasure of saying the words anal probe together with uh, on stage <laughs> in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> so Jane is joining us for the hour to talk about Trump's 12-day trip to Asia, which so far has taken him to Japan, South Korea, and of course, China. Jane, welcome back to Seneca. Thank you. It's great to be with you from Beijing on a blue sky morning and bright sun. Uh, Donald Trump left about an hour ago for Vietnam. And he left the good weather with him. I think so. It wasn't such good weather yesterday. It was rather gray and smoggy. <laughs> well, lucky you. Uh, before we get into what came out of this meeting in Beijing, Jane, uh, let's start off by talking about the relative power of these two men, of Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, going into the meeting. I mean, I think anyone with any you know, glancing familiarity with things just sees that Trump's approval ratings are in the toilet. He's embattled. He hasn't been able to accomplish anything on his legislative agenda. And meanwhile, meanwhile, you know, you have Xi Jinping practically canonized in the recently concluded 19th Party Congress, right? So uh, let's talk about these two guys. And, you know, I think you, you, you characterized it as what? Strong Xi, weak Trump. Is that right? That's how it looks on paper. And that's how it seemed in fact. And I think that's how many Chinese uh, saw it. And many of the press here, of course, saw that. And Trump looked even weaker on the very day that he was here. The election results came out. Uh, on the afternoon that he arrived, the election results came out, which made it a pretty bad day for him. So, yes, Xi Jinping confirmed for a second term by his party Congress uh, two weeks ago, heading into a new era in which he is the sole power, really, and authoritarian leader. And uh, Donald Trump embattled at home, not only by the voters, but by the Russia probe. Right. Jane, it is significant that before he went to China, his first stop was in Japan. Uh, now, Trump is someone who has made no secret of the fact that he doesn't really like Japan. But on this trip, he seemed to do very well with uh, Shinzo, his buddy, who um, sat down with him to sign some uh, caps about making the alliance even greater. Uh Trump talked about the alliance in a way that must have been quite reassuring to Japan. Um, I, I don't know if you agree with that, but what do you think is the big takeaway from the Japan leg of Trump's tour? Well, I think the first thing, actually, is you say Japan, uh, Trump doesn't really like Japan. I don't know of any country that he really does like. So I think he's been persuaded by Abe that he should like Japan, and he seems to like Abe. Whether he likes Japan itself is a whole other question. But he likes Abe because he's you know, he's tough and he's persevering and he wants to rearm Japan and uh, they play... And he plays golf. And they play golf together and, you know, Abe goes out of out of his way to personalize things and it seems that they do have some kind of genuine relationship. Unlike, I would say, the rapport between Xi and Trump, which looks pretty good, but... Uh, boy, there's a big language barrier, there's a big status barrier, there's a big everything barrier. I'm not quite sure how real that so-called uh, uh, mutual admiration club is. I think there's a lot of suspicion. <laughs> Bro bromance. Bromance yeah. is the word I'm preferring to use at the moment about it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a fake bromance. Yes, very, whatever it is, it's pretty fake. But in Japan, I think, and I think it must have not been so reassuring to the Chinese that Trump spent so much time there and seems to be encouraging the Japanese 
to set up a, a sort of an opposition group to China in the Asia Pacific. Uh, Abe is very busy getting India on board and Australia on board and the United States on board, and all four countries are going to do military exercises, uh, aid like-minded countries in the region, and sort of set up a uh, mini-containment strategy. I don't think it's got a hope in hell of working, but um, at least it must be a little bit reassuring to Trump. Um, Jane, um, so uh, was there anything that actually um, happened during his stay in Japan? I mean, was there a new development or was it simply a case of, you know, the optics of uh, this very, very friendly relationship? I think it was more the optics. I, you know, I didn't, I don't recall any sort of major upgrade of military. I may be wrong. I just, I don't recall any details of of military upgrades. I do think Though that the relationship with Japan is important via v trump's Trump's goals in North Korea, so I guess that was what he that's what he went for, and there was no question that he would get it from Abe so speaking of North Korea, how about his stop in South Korea well in south what happened yeah in South Korea, I mean I have to say I was quite impressed by his speech uh to the National Assembly. hard for me to say that, but uh it was a personal speech in the sense that he addressed Kim Jong-un in reasonable language and didn't call him little rocket man, <laughs> made a reasonable argument, and he praised the South Koreans for, for being, you know, the miracle country that had built itself out of the ashes of the Korean War. I, I, I thought it was a very persuasive speech. I have to say, I was stunned, A, that it was written, and B, even more stunned that someone persuaded him to actually read it word for word from the teleprompter and not break out into ad libs. I mean, he he actually followed the script, and it was very effective. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was impressed as well. You mentioned this new sort of eight nation army, which you know I think the resonance of that of that particular number of countries in, in these new exercises can't really land well on the ears of people in Beijing. But this new phrase that Trump has introduced, Indo Pacific. What was the purpose, do you think, of deploying this phrase instead of the more familiar Asia-Pacific? I mean, I understand that there were some people around him pushing for a harder line on China, like our old friend Matt Pottinger now at the NSC, um, who were encouraging him to use this phrase and uh, to feature it prominently in Da Nang, where he's now headed. Uh, what, what, do you, what can you tell us about Indo-Pacific, Jane? Well, it's hardly new. This this has been uh, around for, I'm not sure the number of years, but it's been around for quite a while. It was previously known as the Quad because the leaders are uh, India, Japan, Australia, and the United States. And they advertise themselves as like-minded countries, meaning right. dem- democratic countries and basically countries that are fearful of China. Um, India is the one country that's not an ally of the United States, but it doesn't like China. So, and it's very big and it's got lots of assets that uh, the United States likes. So, frankly, I think it was conjured up at the last moment, when I say the last moment, the last few months before this trip, you know, the White House, Pottinger and co. were thinking, God, what are we going to do to counter China? So they came up with this. I I don't think it's any... Maybe I'm selling them short, but I don't think it's much more complicated than that. And, and you know, the Asia-Pacific is gone. I mean, they've given away the South China Sea, if I may say. And the Asia-Pacific is really the battleground between the United States and China. So they've got to choose a kind of different arena. And India, under Modi, 
is a very willing partner, whether it's an able partner is another question, but <laughs> it's willing and wants to be able. So I think that's important. And it's right next to China, and it's right there in the Indian Ocean, which is strategically incredibly important. So there are lots of reasons that they want to go Indo-Pacific rather than just the more narrow Asia-Pacific. But that said, I do think it was a kind of last minute, oh my God, what are we going to do? We'll do this one. We can't use pivot to Asia, so exactly. Indo-Pacific. Exactly. Atmospherics are really important in this kind of symmetry. And, you know, of course, in Beijing, uh, they do them very well. And it seems that Beijing really did pull out all the stops and give it Donald Trump a state visit plus as um uh, Tsui Tenkai, the ambassador in Washington, D.C., described it, uh, you know, the Forbidden City, um, uh, the uh, delightful press conference that he so enjoyed where journalists aren't allowed to uh, ask questions, uh, that kind of treatment. But what can we conclude about Beijing's strategy or its agenda from the way that they treated Trump? Oh, maybe it's not that complicated. Maybe it is, as everybody has said, to uh, flatter him. He's a big businessman with a big ego, and he loves to be flattered. So they can flatter him while he's here and then just sail on and do what they were going to do anyway. Not come to any agreements, nothing. Uh, we don't know what, what went on, quote, behind the scenes, end quote. But uh, it's hard to see what. I don't think that Xi Jinping agreed to cut off crude oil to North Korea, as Trump was asking. I don't think he agreed to send home North Korean workers. So, and the trade thing will, wasn't really discussed in depth from what we know. So, I think it was a big flattery exercise that left Trump feeling, I can manage with these guys. Meanwhile, China's going to do what it wants to do, and it's got, and it's got the means to do so. Jane, uh, we've heard it so often that it's become kind of banal, you know, this whole thing about Beijing having... Trump figured out, you know, what buttons to push, how to manipulate him through through the whole ceremony and, and the flattery, the whole ego stroking thing. I'm sure they've got a thousand people working on understanding him, you know, his psychology. But this time the flattery seemed to go the other way. Yeah. Uh, Trump seemed to do actually more of the flattering himself. I mean, your paper actually, you you, had a, you bylined a, or you co-bylined a story at the conclusion of the visit. You said, I'm going to quote back at you, your own words. It was a remarkable moment in the story of China's rise and America's response to it with Mr. Trump's performance suggesting a tipping point in great power politics by concluding that the United States can better achieve its goals by flattering a Chinese leader than by challenging him. Mr. Trump seemed to signal a reversal of roles. The United States may now need China's help more than the other way around. I was just driving back from the library with my daughter and I heard Anthony Kuhn on All Things Considered. Um, and he was saying something to the effect that, that Trump really had only a kind of a walk-on part in Xi's, uh, I think he said play or pageant or, or something, but it was, you know, it was Xi's show. Trump, Trump was just sort of you know, showing up in it. What, what, did you, what did you make of that? Well, we wrote the sentence that you uh, read came out of just a little bit of reporting that I did immediately after uh, the two presidents read their speeches and it basically wound up yesterday afternoon. I talked to a couple of China analysts and one of them said, you know, the United, this is the first time that well, before the trip, Shui Yintong said to me, this is the first time that the United States and China are equal. China is no longer the humble, humble country. And yesterday, you could hear in the voices of, the, of knowledgeable Chinese, you know, such glee in a way, saying, no longer can the United States come to China and tell us to do this and that. 
In in fact, uh, uh, Trump metaphorically feels Xi Jinping's big golden balls. I don't know if you saw that footage of <laughs> him. <laughs> Xi Jinping proudly letting Donald Trump pick up or try to pick up a golden urn <laughs> at the Forbidden City. Anyway, sorry, Jane, do go on. No, I was so I I I do think that it's entirely possible that we will be looking at the U.S.-China relationship in a totally different way after this trip, that it is a reversal of roles, that China is going to continue to, um, well, I don't want to say crudely say eat our lunch, but is has that goal and is very determined. And Trump is going to go back to Washington and they're going to be arguing over, you know, whether to do some reforms on a on a body called CFIUS, which will put some stops on Chinese investment in the United States, and they're going to be talking about some obscure trade penalties. It's sort of nibbling around the edges, and China's right. just going to keep on doing what it wants to do. You know, China's moment has come, and I think we may have seen it yesterday with uh, right. and the night before at the Forbidden City with uh, Xi Jinping, newly empowered, newly emboldened, the country in his hand, whether everybody likes it or not, it's another matter, but the country is in his hand, and they have the means and the determination to do what they've got to do. And you look at the, you look at the leader of the United States, he's down in the polls, he's got a Russia investigation, the country is divided like it's never been before, and it feels very tired by comparison. Yeah, that <laughs> that is sobering. Um, Jane, what do you make of Trump's reception amongst Chinese people? You know, we know that he, I mean, even when he was uh, a candidate during the campaign, uh, and up to this day, he enjoys quite a, a bit of support from Chinese people. Um, but I wonder whether popular Chinese attitudes towards Trump have changed much in the year since his election. Did uh, his visit uh, give you any impression of uh, the average Chinese person, if such a be beast exists, uh, what they think of him. Well, hard to know the mind of the average 1.2 billion Chinese average people. I do think, though, that basically most Chinese don't care. Um, they've mm. got their own lives to conduct, and he's not a magnetic character. I mean, this is totally another era. But he's not a John Kennedy. He's not a FDR. He's not a rousing symbol of something. And I think the Chinese don't know that much about him. And he doesn't get that much press here. The press is very carefully controlled. So I wouldn't overestimate this added, this idea that Trump, him, yeah. yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, there's a small slice of people who are business people who admire the fact that he's a businessman and made it to the White House. But among the ordinary Joe Blow, I, I don't think they care too much or know too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about the importance of personal relationships. Uh, I mean, Trump has, has praised Xi quite often in interviews and in tweets and in other remarks and, you know, went, you know, full-blown flattery on, on this trip. She hasn't really reciprocated, though, uh, to, to my knowledge. They both emphasize the importance of, of personal relationships, but is Trump misreading things? I mean, do you think, uh, maybe you have some sources who've given you some clue as to what she honestly thinks of our president, of the U.S. president? <laughs> I don't know what she himself uh, thinks. I think that's pretty hard to know. But 
There is someone in town who speaks to much more senior uh, Chinese officials than I do or ever could. And he says they have this neat phrase, uh, Kim Jong-un is the adolescent and uh, Donald Trump is the, is, is, is the senility one. <laughs> dotard. <laughs> the dotard. <laughs> they, they've, they've adopted dotard too. I love. Uh, so I think that uh, Trump is easy goods for the Chinese. I think they can uh, manipulate him and... I don't think that they must be worried about his unpredictability. And I think for sure on North Korea, we haven't talked about that yet, but I think that's a dark cloud on the horizon. If there was war over North Korea, of course, it would be devastating to the world, but it would be really devastating to China at this particular that's moment. Right. Really devastating. So he is a he's a scary clown. He's not just a clown. No, he, he's no, a sc- he does scare a scary that's right. hard. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um. So at the top of the scary clown's agenda for China has been North Korea, it seems. And that's been, you know, almost from the the beginning of his presidency. Do you think, I mean, is there any argument that he's actually been successful at all in this regard? I mean, that he does seem to have pushed Beijing to take a harder stance? Or is that just because the North Koreans have been letting off so many rockets? I think it's a mixture of the two. I think that you, I think the administration has probably prodded and made the Chinese do some more things that they wouldn't have otherwise done. And I do think that the Chinese are very worried about uh, North Korea. I mean, I don't think they really think that North, North Korea, that Kim Jong-un is going to put his uh, missiles or, or bombs onto China, but, you know, they're right next door and right. anything can happen, particularly as he gets more and more of them. As Kim Jong-un gets more and more weapons, it becomes more and more dangerous and it becomes more likely of an accident. I mean, it's not as though these nuclear weapons in North Korea are under really great management. So I think there's that aspect. And then I think a war would be just devastating. Uh, and Trump, you know, you can't quite tell what he's going to do. That's right. I noticed that buried in Xi's statement yesterday was a line about an earlier date for a meeting with the senior military of the two senior militaries. Um, and I know that uh, Dunford, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is supposed to hold a meeting in Washington this month, I think, actually, with Chinese top leaders. So I think they may be revving up a little bit the communication between the American and the Chinese militaries, which is not to say that that relationship is in great stead, but I think it might be improving a little bit because both sides know that they've got to be able to communicate in this tense situation over North Korea. Right. Jane, you and, and Mark Landler had a piece that you co-bylined yesterday, uh, yesterday uh, from where we sit, in, in which you featured quite a number of, of experts who are arguing essentially that China's already done what it can, that short of a, a, a total crude oil embargo, which would effectively mm. mean regime change, uh, they've done everything that they can. So do you think that Trump maybe came away convinced by Xi, uh, as, you seem to, as you seem to be by these experts, that, that there isn't a lot more China can do? That given its worries about a potential, you know, North Korean refugee crisis or other likely consequences of, of more precipitous action, they've exhausted their their means. Well, the one last thing that the Chinese can do is the sort of the, the the lethal stroke, which is to cut off the oil, which would 
since China provides 90% of the crude oil that North Korea uses, which actually isn't that much oil because it's, a, it's such a primitive, a primitive economy. But if the Chinese did cut off the oil, that would, that would make the North Koreans eat grass, as Putin says. Right. And there's, there, there's actually a little bit of debate among the Chinese experts on North Korea here. I mean, there's one guy who I speak to a lot who thinks that if North Korea does another big nuclear test or another big ballistic missile launch, that Xi Jinping would cut the oil. Mm. I don't think so, though. I, I disagree yeah, with that. Yeah. I, I can't. I, can't, I, just, I really I can't, can't I, see I, it. I can't but think that, you know, uh, just what, shy 66 years ago now, uh, a certain belligerent East Asian state had its oil supply cut off. And hmm. what, what was the result of that? So it's not clear to me what... If anything, they achieved on North Korea yesterday. If they, if the Trump people did get some things, they weren't going to announce them right away. Um, and what about China, Jane? Do do you expect China might announce anything further on North Korea after this visit? Oh, look, Jeremy, around the margins. I, look, I just don't think these sanctions are going to work. There's always going to be smugglers. There are always going to be ways to get hard currency into into North Korea. The only way they're going to work is if you cut off the legs of the elite around Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-un himself. So how do you do that? I suppose you close down their bank accounts in Switzerland. I'm of the school that sanctions are not going to work, no matter what you do, unless you cut off the oil. And then even then it would take maybe a year or two because Kim Jong-un can make them eat grass for a long time. And in the meantime, they can still be making their their missiles. I mean, it's a, ra- it's a race against time. And uh, it seems seems a question mark whether they can, that sanctions can work in time before North Korea gets the ICBM that can reach the United States. So the North Koreans may be eating grass, but it looks like beef is back on, on the menu in China. Uh, besides North Korea, of course, the other big issue is trade. Uh, do you think that anything substantial and new was actually announced? I mean, the whole beef imports thing was already part of the agreement for the 100-day plan after Mar-a-Lago, I got, I got. I mean, so there were announcements of some big trade deals this time. I think they were they were throwing around a number of like $250 billion. But I think these things have become kind of de rigueur. I mean, they're just kind of window dressing. And, and I think everyone knows that they should discount this in the sense that, you know, much of this would have happened irrespective of the summitry. So what in terms of trade, can Trump take home and and, and show off? Well, he can show to his people, um, I got $250 billion worth of deals and nobody's going to read the fine print, but you're right. Most of these deals were preordained. Most of them are in sectors that do business with China anyway. So it's not as though any of these deals open up new... New markets, yeah. New markets at all. And on the really important subject of... um, the shrinking of the market for America's tech sector, technology sector, as far as one can tell, that was not on that was not on the agenda, and that's really right. important. Right. right. Uh, yeah, certainly Bloomberg uh, um, in their reporting uh, didn't take a very positive view. Oh yeah, they the were very they dim. Said, yeah. They said that two hundred and fifty billion worth of deals announced feature little of substance. Many are memorandums of understanding with few details. They're not contracts. Um, and Boeing so, was there. Yeah. Boeing was there with, you know, X number of planes. The, the planes would have been sold anyway. I mean, right. 
uh, Ross, Wilbur Ross came here about six weeks ago, I guess, and basically was handing out his, you know, holding out his tin cup, trying to figure out, you know, what what deals he could get that he could uh, line up six weeks later for the for the performance yesterday. But Jeremy, to be fair, deliverables. yeah. But to be fair, Jeremy, every time they announce a whole bunch of deals, it's always MOUs. It's it's never actual contracts. And I mean, it's the same wherever China goes. Like they they'll they'll you know announce, they'll go to Pakistan and announce sixty billion dollars worth of deals. But you know, it's exactly it's a, a lot of smoke. Right? Exactly. Okay. Fair. 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 Fair enough. But um, in in remarks before business leaders in Beijing uh, with the press present. Uh, Trump started off sounding pretty hard-hitting. He said China's trade practices have been unfair, citing a deficit of $500 billion a year annually. Uh, he talked about barriers to market access and forced technology transfer, theft of intellectual property, which he said cost the U.S. $300 billion a year. He said that trade with China had been one-sided and unfair. And then he dramatically stopped and he said, but, but I don't blame China. I give China great credit. <laughs> I give you credit, Jeremy. As Kaiser alluded to in the beginning of the podcast. In actuality, I do blame past administrations for allowing this out of control trade deficit to grow. So how does Beijing hear this? And, you know, what the hell was he trying to say giving great credit to China for taking advantage of the United States? I mean, Tillerson said that he was just being a little tongue-in-cheek, right? Uh, but I think Americans would see it more like tongue in another body part and somebody else's body part. But you're saying, Jane? I, I think it's just one more area where the Chinese can feel very um, – pat themselves on the back and say – Wow, we did very well. Uh, he's uh, congratulating us on taking advantage of the, of of the United States. I mean, it seems to be a line that the that the administration has consciously adopted. Lighthouser, the trade negotiator, said exactly the same thing a, a couple of days ago. I don't quite understand the logic of it. I guess they think it goes down well with their electorate in the United States. It sounds very bizarre here. Yeah, yeah, it sounds very strange to me as part of that electorate. I mean, it sounds. Very, very odd. I don't understand it. Jeremy, do you have any thoughts on what he could have been doing? I mean, what was... I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think part of it is this admiration of, of, of strength. He thinks that somebody who's able to cheat somebody else is a good business person and a, a sign of strength. And maybe that's what he's talking about. Yeah, I mean, he about. might think that know. privately, but why does he have to vocalize it? I don't understand. Well, what... I, I mean, I think we, we, we can be pretty sure of one thing about Trump. He doesn't have a great restraint mechanism yeah, no filters, yeah. between his brain and his mouth. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I think there must be like some kind of crazy. It's like when my daughter gets hold of my computer without my permission and watches YouTube. It's like she totally. ADD, like crazy shit going on in that brain. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but, but I don't think that I don't. I don't think this was ad libbing. I think that, as right. I said, I think this is part of the administration's party line that they have think they're so smart and having figured it out. But uh, because maybe so they think bizarre. it does go down with a domestic electorate, but it it's, doesn't sell well here. Right. So, how much do we know about Jane? Um, how much do we know about what was actually said behind closed doors? Um, don't know. I mean, were you able to get? Don't know. Get any specifics? I mean, on no. one specific, I tried actually late last night to get a specific on one thing that I'm personally quite interested in, which is um, human rights and the fate of Lu Xiaobo's widow. And I understand in the preparation for the visit, there are some people in the administration 
who felt very strongly that the president and the president himself should bring up Lu Xiaobo's widow, who is here in Beijing, is not well, is under house arrest, and who wants to leave and has made very clear she wants to go to Germany or the United States. And as I understand it, there was a big push to get this onto Trump's, his personal agenda, his piece of paper that he was dealing with, with uh, uh, Xi. Whether he did so, I... I, I don't know, but in the in general, human rights was 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 not mentioned. Uh, which not is, not mentioned at all. Which so is, which th- is a this big is departure. A new thing. This is a big big yeah. departure for which the Chinese are really really grateful, and uh, I think that this is a, uh, a a turn that is that we'll look back on also as another landmark of this visit. Yeah, and tragic one. What about Xi Jinping's speech? Uh, I mean, he he talked at the U.S.-China Business Exchange in Beijing, and then at the press conference. And uh, hey, press conference? Know, he, no press conference. Well, Kaiser. okay, yeah. Let's not call it a press conference. That fake press conference, right? <laughs> Whatever that thing was, where there was press and no questions. But I shouldn't be saying this, but where the press was actually a supporting cast for two leaders to say what they wanted to say. I mean, it, Jay, that's exactly Jay, what it was. Jay Carney, uh, Senator, who was uh, Clinton's Obama's uh, press secretary. Uh, excuse me, Obama's press secretary, sent out a tweet last night saying that he threatened the Chinese that if they didn't allow they questions to be asked, uh, no journalists would turn up, and they caved. Right, but and that was on the second visit. On the first visit, the, he caved and and allowed a press conference. to to take place with well, that wasn't Carney at the time, but it was another press secretary who allowed a press conference to go on with no, no, no questions as well, right? I think uh, in, in future, I think in future, the, if the if the, the Chinese won't allow questions, the, the White House should just put out a written statement. What's the benefit of right. two leaders reading statements? It's ridiculous. It's yeah, it's show. I don't even know who it's for, but anyway. Um, yes, did, yes, so yes. yeah, so she he did talk about two-way investment deals. He talked about opening up further market access. Uh, he talked about you know, like you, you alluded to, increasing military to military dialogue. He even mentioned cybersecurity and then fighting narcotics, which I suppose is is an allusion to fentanyl, which I think is a, a gigantic plot by the Sackler family to distract from the fact that it's actually you know oxycontin uh, and Purdue. That, that it's behind the actual opioid epidemic, but you know, blame China. There's a rich historical irony in them being the the villains in the new opium war. Anyway, was she all boil? I mean, was this all boilerplate? Was there anything of substance in in what she announced? I don't think it was boilerplate from this point of view. Uh, he did uh, say again that the Pacific Ocean is is big enough for the two of us. And yeah, he's been that's saying that. For, no, <laughs> so I don't think that's boilerplate. I think that's okay. a way of saying that, yes, big enough for the two of us. You, the United States, can have the eastern side of the Pacific, and we, China, will have the western side of the Pacific. I think it's the first step of China saying to the United States, this Pacific is no longer your entire domain. And I think the fact... But Jane, Jane, what, so, sorry, wasn't that phrase specifically used at the Sunnyland Summit with Obama? Yes, it was. The first time? It was, it yeah. was. And he hasn't gotten, he, and he's gotten a little, he's gotten, he's made a few, he's made a few <clears throat> uh, steps in his direction since then, i.e., basically the South China Sea has become China's. He's, he's doing pretty well on that one. I wouldn't take it right. as boilerplate. The, uh, the island constru- the island construction is going on unimpeded essentially. Correct. Is is that how we would measure 
China's control. Correct. Sort of, if we need a correct a kind of a yardstick. I mean, I'm not saying they control they... it. Of course, I'm I'm being metaphorical, but I I think that they have made good gains in the South China Sea, and the United States has not found a way uh, to control that. And China is showing every sign of continuing big time. They just unveiled the biggest, the world's biggest dredger ever last week. A dredger yeah. that can build, uh, you know, fake islands before you can blink. So <laughs> I, 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 I think this ocean is something to watch. Which is, by the way, I guess why this, uh, the Indo-Pacific has become the new mantra because, you know, we've got to watch not, we've got to watch the Indian Ocean and the Pacific and maybe they want to take eyes off the Asia Pacific because, you know, things aren't going so well there. Uh, Jane, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Jane, uh, another area where things maybe not going so well for the United States. I mean, while Trump is obsessed with revitalizing the American coal industry and he's fixated on steel and automotive in the trade relationship with China. Um, you you wrote a piece with uh, the Times tech correspondent, my friend Paul Moser, and with Jonathan Ansfield about uh, China's push into advanced technologies like this, you know, the next generation microchips and AI and electric cars or, you know, really advanced electric vehicles, presumably like self-driving cars. These are the things that are really going to present challenges. And, and your piece, uh, you center on this policy initiative called Made in China 2025, which I think a lot of people don't know about, but you correctly describe it as industrial policy. Uh, can you tell us what's in it and why the U.S. should be so concerned? Well, I'm glad you picked up on this. To use an old-fashioned phrase, Made in China 2025 has been a bee in my bonnet for about six months more. It should have been one longer. This is a policy that China unveiled in 2015, count it, right. two years ago. And uh, the Obama administration paid no attention. In fact, Obama, an Obama admin, administration official said to me a couple of months ago, we missed the entire thing. Uh, Penny Pritzker did make a speech about it last November before they left office, but it was way too late. What is it? It's putting the financial might and muscle of the Chinese state behind uh, trying to leapfrog various technologies so that China can be the smart manufacturer of the world by, well, at starting that way by 2025 20, and, you know, becoming world, the world's smart manufacturer a few years later. It's a massive project. Let's see if it's going to work. I mean, there are some people like Kai-Fu Lee, who you know and who we interviewed for the piece, who believe throwing money at new technologies isn't necessarily, government money is not necessarily the way to go, that they're picking winners and losers. On the other hand, Kaiser, uh, Kaifu Lee does say, you know, the determination, the brains here, are, and the, determina the, the, the speed of work is so much uh, stronger than in the United States. He gives it a good chance of succeeding. Right, right, right. I wouldn't bet against it. I mean, that's that's the the thing with China is it, it, we look at these really grandiose plans that are laid out every five years, and as it turns out, if you set sail to the, those winds that they generate, you can get, get pretty far. Uh, you wouldn't I wouldn't bet against it. The one thing I do I should add though that's really important from the United States point of view is that under this Made in China twenty twenty five, foreign tech companies are 
and that includes car companies as well, are obliged to form joint ventures, which under the, the terms of those joint ventures, uh, the foreign company is obliged to share technology. And, you know, if you, if you as a company are not willing to do that, then it's very, it's almost impossible to get into the China market. So basically, it's a program of tech transfer in exchange for so-called market access. Market no access, yeah. For yeah. A fragile promise of market access, I might say. No, no mm. guarantee that you'll get the market access uh, that you think you will. Uh, that sounds like the story of my life for the last 20-something years, <laughs> uh, is hearing that, a variation on that theme. It sounds like what every um, joint venture has ever faced in China. But. Oh, Jeremy, it'll be, diff- it'll be different when you go to the New York Times next week. It will, huh? Okay. <laughs> you have to transfer They're not going to force me to. <laughs> I'm a bit worried. <laughs> um, so, Jane, if I can change the subject a little bit, how has Taiwan viewed the evolving relationship between Trump and Xi? Is Taipei worried that they're about to be thrown under the bus in exchange for a pledge of help on North Korea or Nervously. something like that? Yes, I think they are. And I think they have every, every right to be. I think maybe one of the unwritten stories of yesterday is that the quid pro quo on North Korea may involve Taiwan as the first core interest of China out of the gate. It was very interesting yesterday. Xinhua reported that Xi Jinping said that Taiwan was the most important core interest. Some, some, some line like that. Right. And when, right. And when I was speaking to an analyst yesterday, this analyst said, well, in return for work on this, anything on North Korea, China's going to expect big progress on Taiwan. I said, oh, you mean uh, the end of arms sales? He said, oh, no, 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 much more than that. Talks, you know, talks for the basically the reintegration of Taiwan. I was so shocked, I didn't know what to say. So on was reflection... Was this somebody who, who you can name or... No, I'm not going to name okay, this person. Okay, okay. Uh, I mean, that I sounds... So but shocked. I mean, even the official statements were, were pretty strong. I mean, yes. uh, the official statement was, the Taiwan issue is the most important, most sensitive core issue in China-US relations. Right, right. And concerns the political basis of the China-US relationship. Yes. Is how the uh, foreign ministry paraphrased Xi Jinping. Right. Uh, his words to Trump. So, so I think so that's Jane, got big meaning. Go, I'm sorry, go ahead. I think that has big meaning. Yeah, I think so too. So Jane, if we, we could summarize the trip, I mean, what what were the big takeaways from here? I mean, I think we, I'm, I'm getting a pretty clear picture of, of what you see having come out of this and uh, how you would tally the scores on, on both sides. Uh, why don't you put it in your own words? Though? What, what would just... To, to wrap it all up, what was the outcome? I think uh, China is at a important point after the Party Congress. Xi Jinping is newly elevated to be this the one man that rules uh, the, the most popular. You could describe him country. as the king of China. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but somebody uh, did. <laughs> you know, they, they came out of the starting gates. He came out of the starting gates from the Congress in really good shape. And I think Trump gave him a big lever up by being so undemanding. You know, I, I, I thought for a moment that he would actually come out of this without having completely disgraced or embarrassed himself. But... Um, well, I mean, Trump case. didn't embarrass himself. I mean, he, well, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't say. That, well, he embarrassed himself by saying, uh, blaming the United States uh, right, for that's, the that's trade what I'm problems. Looking at, that right. that was that's that was a big embarrassment. But that seems to be 
as I mentioned earlier, the administration's thought-through line. He did not uh, call uh, Xi Jinping rude names, and he flattered him, so pretty basic. So, Jane, what has happened to the Steve Bannons of the world and the angry people? I mean, John Pomfret wrote an opinion piece, well, it was a phrase as an open letter to Xi Jinping in, in the Washington Post, where he said that the problem is much bigger than Trump in terms of the American anger at China's trade practices and that the anger is very deep and uh, a lot of uh, business people are feeling it and that there's going to be a reaction against China. Um, there's that. And then there is the famous Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro hostility to China. Has that all just, where, where has that anti-China kind of energy gone? Well, I'm here and you're there, so I can't really speak to what the anti, how the anti-China energy is in the United States. I mean, look, I, I hope that for the health of both countries, and I don't want to sound like a politician here, which God forbid I'm not, that there's not anger on both sides, that, you know, that grown countries can um, negotiate, but you don't see any big effort by this administration to negotiate and try very hard with China. And in the meantime, and maybe it's too late because China has set out this Made in China 2025 uh, plan. They have put in these uh, very harsh security laws, these very harsh cybersecurity laws. They're tamping down on their society with very little uh, protest. Maybe it's too late for the United States to roll any of that back or to negotiate some uh, equilibrium. That's That could be the outcome of this trip. Indeed, indeed. So Jane, thanks once again for joining us. Uh, as always, it's just a real pleasure to have you. Uh, before we let you go, we're going to make some recommendations. And before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Sign up for SubChina's free email newsletter. Follow us on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. And don't forget to leave us a positive review over on the Apple iTunes store to help other people discover our podcast. Uh, now, on to Recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? I have a recommendation of a snack that my whole family used to enjoy in Beijing, and we are delighted to find in the United States at Asian markets, and also you can buy it online, which <laughs> is the wait. Mala Peanuts. Oh, um, those are great. Uh, Huang Fei Hong. It, you know, it's a kind of Sichuan-style flavor. It's the Sichuanese pepper, the huajiao, and then a spicy pepper. And they are just like the most delicious things even my kids don't usually like spicy food but they love these peanuts but i i can eat a boatload of them, yeah I, so. I can too we, we move them quickly here here's a, a pro tip after you've eaten all the peanuts if you're, you're not going to actually eat the huajiao and, and the, the little dried strips of lajiao you can use them I and mean, we keep them as an as a condiment just to uh, to stir fry just a you know a handful of that stir fried in with a vegetable that's a pretty obvious pro tip kaiser but okay thank but you. no it's 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 people don't, don't don't all do this it's it's really it's a great a waste of great spice. Right, yeah, exactly. that would be. It is. It's it's fabulously well seasoned. Yeah, Huang Fei Hong. It's uh, I totally second that recommendation. And yeah, we can get them here too. We can get we can buy we buy it by the caseload here. <laughs> yeah, globalization has its upsides. It I am a globalist for this reason alone. This and and uh, uh, and Logama. Yes. 
Okay, Jane, you're up. Hopefully uh, you have something for us. <laughs> you want me to recommend something to eat or to read? Something to read would be great. Something to read. You're, you're the, we brought you on because you're smart. You have to uh, recommend something to yeah, read. Yeah, brainy. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, there's this wonderful novel that I've just started called Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. It's about uh, the Koreans in Japan uh, from long ago, and uh, it seems to be a really wonderful read. It's such a complex relationship in uh, North Asia that we don't know enough about the relationship between Japan, uh, the colonizer of Korea, very brutal uh, colonization, and the bad vibes between two of America's big allies, biggest allies in this region, Korea, South Korea and Japan, go back to that colonization period. So I'm really looking forward to reading it. That's a great recommendation. I'll definitely check it out. I've been, um, that's, 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 yeah. As a warm-up, Jonathan Sobel, a financial writer in uh, Tokyo, wrote a very nice piece about her uh, just a couple of days ago, so I'm sure it's easy to find on the website. And she's very, uh, Matoko Rich, our terrific uh, Tokyo bureau chief, is very friendly with her and told me that um, she had, the author had really done years of research on the book, you know, interviewing oh, wow. lots of real people. So I've got, I'm going to Seoul tonight for a story to do with North Korea, and I've got it in my bag. Oh, excellent. Outstanding. I'm going to recommend a book, too. Um, the book I'm going to recommend is called World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. It's by Franklin Foer, one of those famous Foer brothers. Uh, Franklin is the former editor-in-chief of The New Republic, uh, which was, of course, bought in 2012 by one of the early Facebook billionaires, Chris Hughes. Uh, he was Mark Zuckerberg's roommate at Harvard. Uh, and that whole experience has really soured him on, on what Silicon Valley is doing to intellectual life in the States. Um, I'm quite sympathetic to a lot of what he talks about, especially when it comes to the whole rise of this whole click-driven, metrics-obsessed online media. Uh, so definitely give it a raise. Uh, uh, definitely give it a read. It's, 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 it's very much worthwhile. Give me a raise, too. Uh, definitely give it a read. It's very worthwhile. The title I, I, again? It's called World Without Mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's it's he, he tells the whole story toward the end of his his experience at the New Republic, and it's chastening. It's quite chastening. So uh, definitely check it check it out. Well, thanks, Jane. It was so great to have you. Thank you. It was really yeah. uh, fun to be on. And Jeremy, give them hell in New York and tell them to get going and stop talking. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. Right. <laughs> you, you, Jeremy, you have to clue me in about what's going on here with the times. So. Jane, thanks thanks once again. It was great to, to, to have you on the show again. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn over there. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SupChina News and follow us on Twitter at SupChina News. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. 